Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello again, everybody. Kim and I are here to talk all things wine with you today. How are you, Kim? I'm well, Mark. Thanks. How are you? Everything is great. The Good. weather is heating up and uh-huh. we need to talk about some wine to our listeners. We have uh, a few articles today we'd like to cover. The first from our friends at Vine Pair about aperitivos, Kim. And I know you are a big fan of aperitivos because I saw a social media post of you the other day enjoying one. So I'm always uh, I'm always posting my pictures of my pretty cocktails <laughs> and I've been whipping up at home. Uh, and one of the things that we have been drinking a lot of this summer... Uh, are Lou Sprit, so the Aperol and Prosecco cocktail that is very, very popular throughout Italy. And my husband loves Aperol. He loves all those like bitter Amaro kind of things. And he makes a fantastic spritz. So we've been drinking uh, a lot of those this summer. And it's, it's such a cool color because it's like this vibrant tangerine orange and it's wild. And it just is, you know, for hot weather like this, it's refreshing and a little bit sweet and a little bit bitter and a little bit sour so it kind of covers all those bases and a little bit bubbly which as we all know is something that I am way into. Yeah this was the perfect article I thought for this time of year and aperitivo Kim how, how would you explain to our listeners when I hear it to me it's always an Italian pre-dinner like a preparation drink to get you ready for the meal. How right would you it's explain sort of it? like the Italian equivalent of somebody having cocktails here before dinner. So it really is this sort of transitional kind of thing between, all right, the workday is over, let's transition into our, we're either at home or we're out and we're, you know, winding down a little bit. And it can be something simple like a glass of Prosecco. People certainly can have a cocktail as their aperitivo. But these sort of light wine spritzer kind of things are, um, are the popular aperitivos uh, in Italy and especially in Northern Italy. And I think for us now with a lot of people still trying to socially distance, maybe working from home a lot, there is something kind of nice about finding the break in your day, like where you can start to say, okay, my workday is over and now I'm going to start, you know, my my family time or my relaxing time. And I think it's really nice to have this sort of ritual, you know, an afternoon, maybe it's 4.30 if you're lucky, maybe it's five or six, winding down ritual. Maybe you have this nice light cocktail with some nibbles and, you know, cheese or olives or cookies or whatever you happen to have around. Um, just to make that transition between work and home, because as so many people are working from home, it does make it a little bit more difficult to kind of have that work-life balance. So that's one of the things that I really like about uh, about this concept. Yeah, and they're typically light alcohol, light refreshing drinks, so it doesn't add to the weight of the meal, like it, it preps you for the meal. So you had mentioned Aperol Spritz, which right. so I think for like the last few years. Thing. Yeah. The last few years, the Aperol spritz has really been trending very popular. And just for our listeners, the Aperol is like an Italian 
I want to say it's a bitter liqueur. Would you say it's an like, orange bitter flavor? Yeah, I would agree. It's, um, and, we looked it up. It's actually supposed to be rhubarb. And I don't get a lot of rhubarb flavor out of it. But that's, you know, I always thought it was orange peel or grapefruit or something like that. But um, apparently it's rhubarb. Yeah, I get a little herbal thing too with it at mm-hmm, times. Mm-hmm. And it's like 11% alcohol and you're adding it to a Prosecco that's between 9 and 11% alcohol. So very refreshing drink. Now, in this article, Kim, they mentioned food pairings for the spritz. Was this, was it with Prosecco only or was the pairing with as an aperitivo? Because I just I saw the pairing. Was, yeah, I think it was for either. Um, and they're, you know, kind of being a little bit, I think, free with the concept of aperitivo, they're not saying, okay, you have to have Prosecco or a spritz. It's like, no, you know, whatever you find refreshing at the end of the day kind of thing is good. And these are some ideas for optional food things to go with them. And it's very broad, very varied, you know, something as simple as, you know, a bowl of nuts and some slices of cheese to, you know, chips or whatever you happen to have around your house. I bet pretzels would be excellent with with spritz. I personally like potato chips with my sparkling wine. So, you know, any of those things would work really, really well. We we always keep like pickles and olives and stuff like that in the fridge. So that's what I would bust out for. Yeah. So, so light foods that would be before the meal, make, right, which makes sense. But they, they mentioned four sweetnesses of the Prosecco, which two of them I feel are very rare to find. I mean, a dry version and an extra brute version in the Prosecco world are pretty tough to find. The extra dry and brute I, are the two most popular you're going to see. And just to remind mm-hmm. our listeners, the brute is drier than extra dry. So, and Kim and mentioned some of the pairings. So for extra dry, they recommended spring rolls, cheese and chicken. Sounds like my food pairing, just something very basic, (laughs) chicken, any type of chicken, right? Extra dry. So I I feel, I mean, that's a a good recommendation. And you mentioned on the brute side, you mentioned nut, they mentioned uh, olives. And what was the other thing? Uh, Crostini or something, just a very basic uh, pairing, which makes sense. I mean, light foods, the driest version. Have you ever paired your aperitivo with anything? Not in a formal pairing kind of way. Besides potato chips? Besides potato chips. Um, I I don't give it that much. (laughs) I don't think I give it that much thought. It's sort of like, okay, what do I have in the fridge? Or what do I have in the cupboard? And especially right now where I'm not about to just run out to the store and get something special for it. It's like, you know, it's a little more scroungy about the food that I have in my in my house. And if I know that I'm going to be drinking one of these lighter drinks, I'm not going to go with something, you know, heavy, especially if it's right before dinner. But I wouldn't shy away from doing something, you know, maybe a little bit spicy or a dip. Um, you know, even just veggies and yogurt dip are lovely. So yeah, any, really anything. I don't, I don't find that there are too many uh, combinations that are really terrible or really clashy. So I think it's just, you know, something that is light and fun and you don't have to think about too much and is very enjoyable. So what's your secret recipe for your aperitivo with the, with Aperol? Three pots to two so pots or? I asked my husband's permission if I could share his recipe for low spritz because he does, I feel like, make one of the best ones that I've ever had. And like right. I said before, I don't really like Aperol all that much because for me, it's too bitter. But I think he does it perfectly. It makes a really, really nice balanced one. So what he does is equal part Aperol and Prosecco. And he adds a little bit of seltzer water or soda water at the very end. 
So um, for me, he makes them a little bit lighter on the Aperol. So it does more like two parts Prosecco, one part Aperol, and then the seltzer floater. But um, his way of making them is one-to-one and then a little bit of extra bubbly water. Now you're putting in ice or a garnish? Ice. We put a big ice cube. um, And then the traditional garnish is uh, an orange slice, an orange wheel. And I got yelled at by lots of friends for not putting my orange garnish in my low spritz in my picture. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I don't tend to do a lot of garnishes. I'm just like, you know what? If I'm not going to eat it, I don't really want it in my glass. So, Are you making these in a big batch or one at a time? One at a time. One at a time. One at a time. Usually for both, I'll make them one at a time because I don't want the bubbles to disappear. So if you're making a big batch of them and you're, you know, they're sitting on the counter for an hour, those those four bubbles are going to are going to dissipate and i like my bubbles so and yeah, do you have a preference extra dry dr- brute any preference um i prefer extra dry prosecco when i make cocktail kind of things like this i i really like that little bit of sweetness that it has i'm kind of the opposite when it comes to using champagne and things i'll want to do a brute but for prosecco cocktails i really i like it extra dry and the vast majority as you said of proseccos that are on the market are that extra dry style. So, you know, whether you're picking up a bottle of La Marca or a bottle of something that has a little bit of a higher designation on it, unless it says brute on the label, chances are it's going to be that extra dry style. Well, that's a good tip. Thanks good for sharing know. the secret recipe. <laughs> it's a perfect time of year for this drink. So try Kim's drink. You're listening to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about Mark at franklinliquors.com, more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com, and you can find our show on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. The next article that we wanted to discuss with you actually showed up in a couple of different places while we were doing our research, and there is some movement going on in the European Union about requiring more detailed labels on wine bottles. Uh, And this is in regards to ingredients and what is actually in your bottle of wine. So there's been a little bit of chatter about this uh, for the U.S. market over the last year or two. You know, people are considering, do we put calorie counts on there? Do we put ingredients on there? Um, And I hadn't realized that the EU was actually making a move, and pretty seriously, to do something similar and a, and a little bit more detailed, Mark. Yeah. I, I mean, you know me, Kim, and I think the listeners probably know that I'm a huge wine label geek. So mm-hmm. this, there was actually two articles. Wine Searcher was more of the EU, what they're looking at. And then Forbes was taking a look at in the US what the movement is. And I ended up writing a bunch of questions again for you, Kim. First off, what is your feeling on ingredients being on the label and what do you define as an ingredient? Yeah, and that's sort of the the big question. I think there are a lot of pros and cons and things that could be pros, but if people don't understand what they're reading, could be problematic just for the consumer understanding what the heck we're talking about. So my jury is a little bit, I think, out on this. My gut is that this is a good thing. Because I feel like more information is better than less information. But we, at least in the U.S. here, seem to have such an issue with people seeing sciencey things and getting really freaked out and scared by it and not doing enough research to understand what they're actually supposed to be understanding. So I feel like if we put lots of information that people 
don't have any experience with on a wine label, it's going to kind of blow up at the people who are trying to do good by giving more information out there. So I'm just, I'm afraid that if we start listing all of these things that go into regular wine production, that people aren't going to understand what they're reading and be like, ah, there's all these chemicals and stuff in here. It's like, yeah. well, yes, there are, and there always have been, but just because there are things in wine that you don't understand, that doesn't make it necessarily harmful for you or bad for the wine or bad for you. Yeah. So you, you're leaning more that they wouldn't, the average wine drinker would not understand what that stuff is, or it would scare them. Both. Yeah. I think I'm, both. I'm thinking the same thing. And I, what makes me always wonder is we always pick up our food and we're looking at the ingredients, right? What is in here? And in, in a lot of stuff, you can't even pronounce it right? I mean, there's additives and, and we don't care. But in wine, I don't know why people don't want to see that as well. We're already adapted to it with our food. So if you care, yeah. you're really finding out what that stuff is, right? You, you care what you're eating. So you're looking up what red dye number two is or whatever in your M&Ms and stuff like that. So why wouldn't you do that for your wine? And I don't think it's a matter of people don't care. I think it's a matter of people haven't thought about it. Because if those labels have never been on wine before. And also, I mean, Americans don't think about wine as food. So we don't know what's in any of our alcoholic beverages. You don't really know what's in your vodka. You don't really know what's in your beer. And wine is kind of the same way. So I feel like if it's never been on a label before, people aren't thinking that it should be. And I think that also with wine, you know, there's this romanticized ideal that it's just smushed grapes and magically turns into wine and that's what goes in your bottle. But there's a reality to wine production that I think a lot of people just don't, don't even know goes on, that they don't know how wine is made. And when we talk about how wine is made in a, you know, in a class or, you know, you might see an infographic online, they really don't talk about extra things getting added in there. It's all like, oh, the white, the white grapes are pressed and the juice is put into this fermenter and yeast is added and then, boom, two weeks later we have wine. But it's not. There are a lot of other processes that can go on, whether it's fining with different agents or correcting for acid or when we add sulfites and, and all that sort of stuff. So I think a lot of it is, I don't want to go so far as to say misinformation, but just no information, really. Right. And I think we scare people often when we, when we do tell them what's going on and the substances and the additives and everything else. I just wish people had a basic understanding of it and make their own decision. I think what's happening on the sides we're seeing here now is you have the, the winemakers who are smaller production winemakers who are using real natural ingredients. They want people to know. Right. And then you have the big guys, which they're making bulk wine. They're making a lot of wine. They don't want you to know because they don't want to hurt their brand, I feel. So mm -hmm. the EU version, uh, they're looking at anything, any substance or ingredient that's put in it, they say, we should tell people any substance, any point of the winemaking process. So, I mean, that's interesting because there's sugar, like you said, there's acids. It could be a huge list, but the EU right now kind of regulates their labeling different than we do. So the second part of this article was about Forbes talking about the U.S. where in the U.S. the TTB regulates what's on a label. But there was some talk where the FDA might be getting involved mm -hmm. in the future because the TTB is not really telling you what they want to tell you. There's lists on TTB sites of what ingredients are added to the wine, but there's only that one substance that's on the label that's required, and that's sulfur. 
I think there are big long lists that are pretty easy to find about all the things that could be in your wine, but they're not going to tell you like if you pick up this one bottle off the shelf, what is actually in this particular winemaker's bottle here. Right. And nutrition information is only required on beverages that are below 6% alcohol. So you've probably seen a lot of the seltzers lately that have nutrition information, but your wine doesn't have that. And that's why, because the alcohol is higher. I, I'm more concerned about the, the U.S. direction on this. It was very interesting. Uh, what did you t- take on the, the U.S. version, Kim? I, I thought it was very interesting that there's a, an industry group who's actually pushing for this, that they want all, all of the ingredients, not just, not just additives that wouldn't naturally be occurring in wine, but everything listed. And that goes for sugars and enzymes and the things that you would put into your wine to clarify it, any additional additives. I was, I was sort of surprised that there is a group from within the industry that is really pushing for this. But like you said, you know, there are some of those wine producers that because they use fewer of these things, they're really proud of it. And they want their consumers to know, you know, in a comparison kind of way, how they stand out from their competition. So... I think you're right that a lot of this is going to come down to the bigger brands and the bigger um, companies that own a lot of wineries and own a lot of wine brands really pushing back against this. And then you might have sort of more of these smaller, more indie producers who are saying, no, you know, let's be transparent and let's show to, to the consumers what is actually in our wine. One of the things there, there could be a lot of things that are substances that are added during the whole process. So they were saying, well, it's just too much. The label, mm-hmm. it wouldn't fit on the label. <laughs> so both the exactly. EU and the US are looking at just putting a simple QR code on there. So if the consumer wants to know, they would just scan the code and it would pop up all the ingredients. So you don't have to put it on the label, but there is a source to bring you to what is on the label. So I love that idea using the technology because if you really wanted to know what was in your wine, you could you could Google the text sheet we talked about a million times in the past to find out what's in the wine. And if the winery wants to tell you, they're going to list it on their website. So I don't see any issue with that at all. I, I love that idea. And I think the EU and the US both being on the same page with that is a, is a good idea. I think that's a good first step because right now, I think what frustrates a lot of consumers who want to know what is in their wine is the lack of information. You just can't Google a wine and see what all the ingredients are. So this would be a way for that information to be out there. And yes, it would take a little bit more effort to figure it out, a few extra steps, but it's still there. And it's there in the public domain and people can find it if they really want to see it. So I think, I think that is a good first step without necessarily scaring everybody with this whole list on the back of the bottle. Yeah. And the label space thing was interesting because some of the wine makers were saying, well, we can't fit it on the label. If we had to redo the label, this would add to cost of the label. And to me, that's a cop out for the big producers because they have a brand, their label is set to a brand. They don't want to redo it, number one. But the real thing I feel is they don't want you to know. They don't want to have to list what they use because then you might be afraid of the brand, like you said earlier about seeing things you might not want to see. But I understand how the cost could be prohibitive to a small, a small producer. You know, it's, they were saying it would add like $10,000 onto their expenses to redo all the labels with all of this stuff. And that's not a small chunk of change if you're just a no, small no. producer. Yeah. I mean, but they do submit the label every year for approval right. before it's printed. You, you have to. So they have time if it's next year. It's just 
a matter of adapting for the year. So it's not like they're pulling things and restickering them. I would assume it would just be the next vintage type of thing. Right. And the other thing I thought was interesting, Kim, the EU, they're saying in the US, whatever the EU decides, the US is probably going to follow. So if the U- EU says, this is what we're going to put on, then that's going to be the model that the US will use, which I think is interesting because we, we don't really follow them now in labeling. Mm-hmm. Right? We always talk about how the EU is more a place and, and here it's more of a brand. Yeah, but that's more the appellation part of it and not the law part of it. And even... Well, they're much stricter in the EU oh, right. law-wise. So I would think they wouldn't want to fall if it's really strict. No? <laughs> and I mean, there's nothing holding them to sticking with what the, what the Europeans are going to do. Maybe it's just them saying it right now and then it's not actually <laughs> when it when the european union rules come through and then the, the u.s ones are like oh no no no, no. we changed our mind we're not going to yeah do that. i'm not going to do it that way so one of the things i did some research on a while back him was additives that are put in wine but are not detected at the end so in right. the final product so there's a lot of things that are done used to clean it or whatever and at the final product it's not in there Mm-hmm. And a winemaker told me one time about one ingredient, and I wanted to ask you if you ever heard of it. It's called Velcorin, V-E-L-C-O-R-I-N. Did you ever hear of it? Oh, I haven't. What is it? It's technically dimethanol dicarbonate, is, but they, the trade name is Velcorin. Okay. So it's a, actually a radioactive ingredient that winemakers use, and it has to be, you have to have a hazmat suit to add it to the wine. So it's a microbial control agent that's put into the wine. And on their side, it says it must be handled with respect. You must have uh, training how to handle it. But yeah, but once the wine is made, it's undetectable. Mm -hmm. But it's this hazardous material that's being used and it's hazardous in the winery. It's hazardous when it goes in the wine. But when you drink it, it's safe. I would want to know. What does it do? So it's an antimicrobial. So does it kill the yeast that's in there? Does it kill bacteria? It's stabilizing, the, it's stabilizing the wine. So it's killing what, any other microorganisms that are exactly. still floating around your wine. And I, and here it's it's very, because it's radioactive. So of course it's killing any, any life in your wine. Yeah. That, it, and it's scary. And I had a winemaker tell me this is quite commonly used and no one knows about it. And then I'm yeah. thinking, well, would I want to know if it's not traced at the end? You, you, you want to know. But then I'm thinking, yeah, this material, I wouldn't want to drink this, even though it's gone. I mean, someone put it in. It's just stuff like that. that it's, and that's one of the additives that the TTB allows a winemaker to put in your wine. So that's just but one if of it's many. Gone, if it's gone by the end, what does it matter if it was put in there to begin with for you? It's gone. It, they it's like say when, it's gone. How do I, how yeah, do we how know do it's know? gone, right? Yeah. And, and there's a lot of things like that. Like when egg whites are used as a fining agent, they're gone by the time the wine gets to you because it's all coagulated with the, with the solids in the wine. So you have a nice clear wine and there's no detectable egg whites whatsoever in there, but people still get bent out of shape if there were egg oh, yeah. whites used for a vegan, A vegan wouldn't touch that wine because it, an egg was used in the making of the, of the water, wine, correct? Correct. And the article for the Velcro and Kim was called, When Wine Can Kill You. 
if anyone wants to research it, research that article. Very interesting product that when, when a winemaker tells me this is stuff that's commonly used and it's scary, then, you, then I get concerned. But like you said, if it's not in the final product, I mean, there's sure there's a lot of things that are not in there. But if you saw that on the, if that was an, a substance used and you saw that as one of the things listed and you researched it, would you drink that wine? And this is, this is you and me who have been doing wine for 20 years, who are, we're fairly well versed in <laughs> these, these kinds of topics. And if it's freaking us out, imagine how it is for someone who just wants a bottle of wine on a Saturday night and doesn't really know anything about wine labels and wine labeling laws and chemistry and stuff like that. So if it's enough for us to be concerned, I can only imagine how the general public will react. I had a feel like it's, you know, like when people um, find out information about how certain medications are made or, you know, vaccinations and things, and people are freaking out because there are things in there that they don't want in their bodies. And yet those things are no longer in the medication, but are, people are still concerned about them because they just don't understand the process. And I think that that is going to be a big part of this if these labeling laws come to pass. It's like, well, people don't understand the process. And even those of us who do understand the process can still get a little nervous when we hear that, you know, it's these type of substances put in our wine. Yeah, and I think a lot of my understanding of why a lot of these substances are used in winemaking is to speed up a process, uh, to turn things over quicker, for, mm -hmm. for, to handle bigger volumes. So there's certain things, if you're only making a thousand cases, you don't have to do very much to it. It pretty much made itself and it, you know, you can care for it a little better, but if you're mm -hmm. talking thousands and thousands of gallons of product, you have to look at things to maintain it, right? To keep it safe, yeah. right? So, so we're really looking at the difference substances. between those commercial wines that are making millions of bottles and, you know, giant quantity all at one time versus some little guy who's, you know, just got a few barrels going on and is only making maybe, you know, 40,000 bottles or cases a year. And, and can, as you said, you know, give a little bit more attention to detail and don't mind when you have a lot of variability from vintage to vintage. But we're, you know, a lot of this is we're talking about wines that winemakers and companies are trying to make a consistent product from year to year because that's what they feel that the drinkers of those wines want. They want the same thing again and again and again because it's a brand and it's something that they've come to rely on. And sometimes to get that, get that consistency from year to year, you do have to make some uh, chemical adjustments so that you do have those, those similar flavors. So that I think is a, an interesting yeah, and I think this way of looking at, at well, why, why is there the need for using all these substances? I think the whole movement is, if it goes through or not, is going to be based on if more consumers get involved Mm -hmm. to say they want it because right. the big corporations I feel don't want this and they overpower the little guys. So, but if the consumer says, Hey, we want this and tells the TTB or the FDA, we need this, then it will go. It'll happen. And I think but I don't see one it. of I the problems I think could come of you know, people saying on the surface, well, yeah, I want to know what's in my wine. And then if it shows up on their label and they look at it and they're like, 
oh my goodness, no, now I don't want to know. <laughs> because, you know, maybe you're, you know, a consumer of one of those big brands. And now all of a sudden, you see all these extra things that you didn't know were in your wine. Uh, yeah, I still feel like knowledge is power. It's just yeah. how do we interpret those things? And maybe that's something that falls to folks like ourselves as wine educators, that here's our way of, um, you know, letting people know what all these things are. So, hey, that could be a future thing for us. Yeah, I mean, we say it oh, a sorry, lot when we do an event. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. We say that a lot when we do an event is, you know, look, research what you're wine, what you're drinking. And um, I mean, we try, but I just don't see the average consumer mm-hmm. caring as much as they should. Thank you for joining us today for the wonderful world of wine. We have been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. You can find our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine, and we always welcome your questions and comments. Uh, we'd like to address those on the show, so send them, send those in. You can find past episodes of our show on SoundCloud and iTunes. Cheers. Wine, wine, wine.